Father, in this morning hour we come again because we are needy and we're hungry and we know, Lord, that it is by the hearing of your word that you continue to shape and form your people. And Father, I pray that this morning as we wade into really what is a a thick and complex section of Galatians, I pray that you'll give all of us wisdom, I pray that you'll give the teacher clarity pray that you'll give those who are hearing, Lord, the understanding. And, and Father, if any of that happens this morning in the next 30-odd minutes that we have together, um, if that happens, we, we will know that it was because of your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I feel a little bit this morning like um, well, a warning. You know, I should have done this at the beginning of our time together in Galatians. Uh, John Owen, a Puritan theologian, wrote a book. Um, and this it really is, was the title of the book, The Death of Death and, and the Death of Jesus Christ. That was the title of the book. Um, it's not on the Lifeway Top Ten, I don't think, at the Christian bookstore. Um, but in the, in the preface to his book, um, John Owen, I mean, you can imagine that modern publishers or publicists would hate this kind of thing, but John Owen said, if you, a fair warning to the reader. If you're coming into this book like Cato, who comes into the theater looking to be entertained, um, you've had your welcome, now I bid you adieu, or something like that. You know, like, uh, go, go your own way. Now, I feel a little bit that way with Galatians. I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm, I'm, this is, this is uh, if, if you're coming for entertainment, you know, warning. This is, this is hard. Um, Galatians is a kind of letter. Paul is a kind of theologian um, that, frankly, I've even had my own fleshly moments over the past week you know, wrestling with these, these texts. Um, where I thought, you know, I just wish some of that weren't in there. You know, like if I, 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 I wish that didn't make the cut. You know, what, have you felt that way about certain parts of the Bible before? Like, you know, it would just be easier if that part weren't in. Um, but that's the whole thing about the canon. I don't get to make that call. Um, I'm, you know, and, and so I'm, we're stuck with Paul. I, we're stuck with it. Uh, so this, this, this morning, we're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, 7. And I, I'm, we're not going to... There's no way to do a kind of detailed exegesis and exposition of the whole of this section. As I mentioned last week, there are interpretive hurdles at every turn in this book. Every every turn. I sat on the couch last night with my wife, um, and I had books spread out in front of me. And I said, you know, I've spent a lot of time with Paul over the years. Um, And he's still, in some sense, a kind of elusive thinker. I mean, just when you think you've kind of got him. Uh, to my mind, that there are certain aspects or certain sentences or ways in which he'll turn a phrase that can turn into a little bit of sand through the fingers. So what I think that does for you, I hope, and what it does for me, uh, I've experienced it, is uh, a little bit of humility when it comes to reading Paul's letters and a recognition that we have to continue to wrestle and think through Paul, the Bible as a whole, because it's never the case within the church that one generation squeezes all the juice out of the Bible that's possible and then renders the ongoing study of the Bible superfluous for the preceding next generations. That's just not how it works. I think there's something deep within us, or at least deep within me, that wishes that it were that way. In other words, if I could just apply the rigors of literary and critical analysis to the text and do really, really hard work. I could wring that thing of all that it is, and then there it is, right? We've, we've done Romans. So let's put that away, right? Got that one. Uh, now let's do John. Did John. That one's done. You know, is it, you've done enough Bible studies, you know, 
That's not the case. And what that pressures on us is a certain understanding of the character of the Word of God. This is living. It's alive. God promises to communicate Himself again and again to us by the Spirit as the Word witnesses to Christ. And it's a living dynamic in our midst. So we might do Galatians this, this, these next three weeks together as we have the past two. And we might do it again next year. Or maybe three years from now. The point being... Um, the Bible demands constant and ongoing attention and reflection because we're tuning our ears in by the power of the Spirit to the living Word of God. We're going to, come, we're going to tail back in on that particular theme because it comes up in our, our text today. What did we talk about last week as we sort of throttled down at the end of the, our time together? The ending of Galatians 2, a programmatic statement for Paul, isn't it? Let me read it to you again. I mean, this is, this is a bumper sticker verse, frankly, from the Bible. Um, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live now in the body, that is in the flesh, here, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What is it that Paul says here in Galatians 2.20, this programmatic statement of Paul, at the core of it is something like this, I died in the crucifixion of Christ. My self-actualization to be something, my pride, my ability to get something done when it comes to my own salvation has been killed. It's, it's died on the cross. Human self-achievement, uh, deeds that are done in the flesh, that is the old person that has died on the cross. And now, the life that I live in the flesh, this current existence that you and I are in, as we live, our life is going to be a life that's lived in faith, in belief, of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. It's the end of human self-justification. It's the end of that. Christ now is, is everything for Paul. And we talked a little bit last week. I wanted to park on it more, so I'm reversing, and then we'll put it back into forward gear. But what I wanted to emphasize last week at the end with this programmatic statement for Paul is really very simple, but yet profound. Christ, Jesus Christ, the revelation of God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, that's everything. That now becomes the eyes, the retina by which Paul views everything. The law, the Old Testament, the prophets, current events, the world, everything is viewed through the lens of Christ because the old age has been put away, the new age is here, and we are now living in the overlap of the ages, the already and the not yet. I'm in Christ. And we're going to come back to that before our, our time is over. That's central for Paul. And then he moves from here. And if you remember, we talked about this last week. Paul's not, and you know this, you've read him, Paul's not always nice. Right? I mean, Paul's not always, uh, he, he doesn't always sort of soften the blow of what he's about to say. Um, we used the analogy last week of a mother who's seeing children drowning. I mean, all, all social pretense is gone in that moment. Something, some screaming's going to happen, right? And this is Paul seeing his children in Galatia, his children in the faith, they're beginning to drown. People are coming in, threatening their faith, the simplicity of their faith, with Jesus plus something. That's always the danger. Yes, Jesus kind of got you in, but here's some plus stuff to kind of help you get further matured in the faith. Paul sees his children about to drown, and he comes unplugged. 
I mean, listen to what he says here in chapter 3. This is the beginning of a whole new section in Galatians. I'll read it to you. You foolish Galatians. Another way of of, of framing that might be, you non-thinking Galatians. You non-reflective Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Paul just told us a few verses earlier, didn't he, that that means everything. When Christ died, we died with Him. All bets are off. It's a new life, a new existence in Christ. You saw Christ through, and what we can understand as implied here is, Paul is saying, through my preaching of the cross, you actually saw Christ crucified before you. And now he goes rhetorical on them. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Well, can't you hear this? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, let me ask you. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? And by the way, let me remind you about Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you hear this? Is, this is Paul now unloading his guns on the Galatian believers. You know, he's gone after the false teachers. He's told them that they're going to be damned. I mean, he uses very strong language. If anyone preaches another gospel to you other than the one that I've given to you, even an angel from heaven, let that person be accursed. Let him be damned. And now he's going after the Galatians. You're foolish. You're thoughtless. You're unreflective. It's a real challenge, I think, to hear that kind of language. I don't know if Paul would have passed pastoral theology 101 um, you know, you know, be gentle. Be, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, I almost feel like I want to pull Paul aside and say, you know, tone it down a little bit, brother. Um, let's be. But he's not. He's not doing that. You're not thinking. You're not reflecting. Here's a real danger, frankly, in all of our Christian existence. If I can moralize for one moment, forgive me. The danger is not necessarily always bad theology, although that's dangerous too. But it's the danger of unreflective kind of Christianity. A kind of Christianity that just sort of moves around in an amorphous state. And Paul is saying, no, oh foolish Galatians, oh non-thinking Galatians, reflect. You remember the, these, these believers in, in Berea, Acts 11, I believe. They're commended because Paul comes and begins to teach them the Scriptures. And what do they do? They go home and they pull out their Bibles and they try to see if what Paul said was actually true. It's reflective, thoughtful a Christianity. And here Paul is saying, Oh foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? You're not thinking. And then he goes for the jugular. How did this whole thing start for you? You're Gentiles, let me remind you. You're one of the Goyim. You're not Jews by birth. You're not Abraham's children by birth. That's not the case. So if you are now the offspring of Abraham, as he's about to go on and tell them that they are, if you are the offspring of Abraham, how exactly did all that happen? Did it happen because you started uh, attending to the works of the law? You didn't even know about the works of the law until these Judaizers came in and started to give you the Jesus plus message. But before that, you didn't know that. What you had before you was Jesus crucified. 
And when you believe that, when you heard that and you believed it, and knew that it was true that Christ has died for you, the Spirit of God began to do His marvelous works in your midst. The work of regeneration. The work of opening your eyes to see that what God has done in Jesus is true. Faith, by the way, and you all know this is true from Ephesians, faith is not something we muster up in a kind of human, self-resourceful kind of way. Sort of dig deep and find my faith. As if faith is measured by its quality. Faith is never measured by its quality. That person's got lots of faith. Or that person's got great faith. I mean, what is it that Jesus says? If it's just like the size of a mustard seed, you move mountains. It's not about the size of our faith, the quality of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. And that comes to us as a gift. It's not something we generate or we create. I mean, you know that I've drunk deeply at the well of John Calvin, right? I've I've said it in here before. I like Calvin a lot. And Calvin and the Reformation tradition, Reformation theology is on to something when it tells us that we are incurably turned in on ourselves. When it says that total depravity, which is a term that maybe we don't really like to hear because we tend to think total depravity means we're really as bad as we could be. That's not really the case. I mean, some people are really bad and some people aren't so bad. That's not the point of total depravity. The point of total depravity is there's not one aspect, there's not one faculty of what it means for you to be a human that has not been infected by the disease of sin. Not one bit of it. Not your ability to will, not your ability to choose, not your ability to feel or think. Not one part of you that makes you a human being has not been infected and affected by sin. Totally, from top to bottom. We don't have the resources within ourselves and our dead state, Ephesians 2, to make faith happen. We don't have the ability to do that. Faith is a gift. It's something that comes from outside of us by the Spirit of God. And that's Paul's point here. You've turned from the recognition that it's the Spirit of God who has born faith in you to believe that what God has said in Jesus is true. That when you saw Christ crucified, preached before you, you saw that and you believed. I believe that. That's true. When that was happening in your midst, you did not make that happen. That was God's own very Spirit at work in your midst. And now you're telling me, this is his rhetorical term, you're telling me that you started that way and now you're going to perfect it by attending again to the flesh. I think Paul's probably doing a rhetorical double entendre here by referring to the flesh as both human resource and probably the act of circumcision. This is what they were saying. If you really want the extra spiritual blessing, if you really want to be an offspring of Abraham, then you need to be physically circumcised as well. And what is Paul saying? Did you start by the Spirit, and now you're going to be perfected by the law? By attendance to the law? It didn't happen that way. And by the way, and this is what I love about Paul, the Old Testament doesn't tell us that it happened that way. The Torah itself doesn't tell us that it happened that way. It happened because Abraham believed 400 and something years before Sinai even occurred. Abraham believed. And that's how God credited him to be in right standing with him. He believed. I want to talk about something real fast before we move on to the other other parts. But this is a very interesting phrase that Paul says here. I want to read it one more time. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
the, 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 the phrase there could act, it's, it's a little bit ambiguous. It's not self-evident. The hearing of faith. And what did Paul say in Romans chapter uh, 10, I believe? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. Right. I mean, this is, this is very significant. It's significant actually within our own Anglican tradition as well. I was reading a book, I commend it to you all, actually called, I think it's Love's Redeeming Work. Uh, um, it's a collection of, of various thoughts on spiritual formation through the history of various Anglican clergymen and theologians. It's, it's actually very good. But in the preface to that um, which, uh, was a statement that, I, that caught me, that Reformation theology, English Reformation theology, prized and valued hearing even over against seeing. The importance of hearing. Why? Because see, there's always the danger, isn't there, in seeing that we're imposing something on what's being seen. In other words, it's hard to construct the truth on the basis of experience. Not in any way to deny experience. And not to deny powerful experiences in the life of the church. But there's always a danger there at play. But what was it that the reformers, including Cramer, what was it that they emphasized? They emphasized the hearing of the Word. There's a certain kind of passivity at play in the Word as it's preached and taught, as it comes to us from outside of ourselves by the Spirit of God and then does its inner heart work. We heard that this morning, didn't we, in the, uh, in the, in the singing of Isaiah chapter 55. I mean, what happens with the Word of God? Well, just like the rain comes... And it waters the earth and things start to grow. When I send my word, it is going to do what I want it to do. The word of God is powerful. It has the ability to elicit faith, to create life. I mean, think about the importance here of the connection between creation and redemption on this particular level. And God said, don't you love this out of Genesis? And God said, let there be light. And what's the next phrase here? And there was light. It is the creative power of God's Word. Lazarus, come out! It was the Word that Lazarus heard that created life in that dead corpse of a man. And all of a sudden, here he comes, bursting out of the grave, grave clothes and all. It is the power of the Word of God and the hearing of our ear by the Spirit of God Himself to elicit life and faith in believers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's a hunger, a deep hunger, that I think you and I have as Christians for the Word of God because we know that that particular means is the way by which God continues by His promised Spirit to minister His very Son to us. We hear the Word of God. We hear the preaching of God because we know that when we were lost, we needed the Gospel. And we know that now that we're saved, we need the Gospel still. And it's the Word of God that comes to us to elicit faith and to create faith in our hearts so that by the Spirit we can say, that's true. That's true. Jesus portrayed as crucified in front of me. That's true. I bet everything on that. No longer do I live, but Christ lives in me. The importance of hearing. I, I do appreciate this about our church. This is a people like the Bible around here. And I think that should be a prayer that we have, that that kind of fever and hunger for the Word of God creates roots that go deep in our faith so that we believe what's taught 
and that that spreads out missionally within our community. Not a bad thing to pray. Well, that was point one. I have like five. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen here. (laughs) Number two, Abraham and the curse of the law. The curse of the law. Oh, and this gets thick. Um, Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul's quoting Leviticus 18.5 here, and he's quoting it, frankly, in a little bit of a strange way. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4. And by the way, and again, this is a side note here, but there's a lot of ink that's been spilt on Paul's quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, a very important verse for Paul. He quotes it in Romans chapter 1. He quotes it here in Galatians chapter 3. The just, the righteous one shall live by faith. And the argument is often made, well, that's really not what Habakkuk is talking about. Habakkuk is talking about faithfulness, not faith. Now, I think that requires a lot of talking, frankly, about the relationship of faith and faithfulness as two sides of the same coin. But I do just want to go ahead and, without any argumentation, just make a a statement. Habakkuk 2.4 is placed in the context of a book where the prophet is encouraging the people of God to believe and trust in God's ultimate salvation despite the suffering that's going on for them right now. So in that whole section there in Habakkuk 2, the prophet is encouraging the people of God to believe, to trust, despite the fact that the promises that God has made have not yet come true yet. So there is a sense in which faith and hope and trust is built into what Habakkuk is after as well. Those who trust in God's ultimate saving action. That's what Habakkuk's all about. You're in the midst of very deep difficulties as the community of faith. So much so that Habakkuk raises those kind of Psalms and Job questions that make us uncomfortable, like, God, are you really around anymore? How long are we going to suffer? Are you just playing with us? Those kind of questions. And the move that's made in Habakkuk is to trust in the saving character of God, even when we're not experiencing it in the present moment. That's very much at the heart of what Paul's after. The just will live by faith. The just will live by a trust and the fact that God's saving actions have been executed, they have been actualized in fullness, in totality, in the person and work of the Son. I believe that. I put my trust in in that. But there's a curse, it says here. This gets into the heart of Deuteronomy. It's kind of a Deuteronomistic theology here at play. What do you have in Deuteronomy? You've read it. I don't know if you've tracked the daily office. And by the way, this has been fascinating for me. Did you track, for those of you reading the office, you see how we move from Deuteronomy into Jeremiah here in the season of Lent? Quite fascinating. There's something really theological going on there about the importance in the Old Testament of the mutual informing of the law and the prophets. I, I just think there's something really rich going on theologically in the way in which our, our, the, the daily office sets that up. But that, that's another talk. Um, but what do we have in Deuteronomy? In Deuteronomy, we have Moses before the people of God saying, if you follow in his commandments, there's life for you. But if you don't follow in his commandments, there will be curses for you, and you have no right to this land if you follow in that way. So I set before you a choice today. Choose the law, follow in God's commandments, and there is life. It's a promise. 
but go the other way and you will meet death. And this is where that mutual informing of the law and the prophets comes into play. That optimistic view of the law as a, as a, as a gift toward life in that particular section of Deuteronomy is at least, at least needs to be informed by the theology of Ezekiel and the other prophets. Ezekiel, in his own words, basically says, that which was promised to you as a gift of life has become the very means of your death. It's death for you now. And I mentioned this last week, and I don't think it can be said enough. The kind of tension that you feel with Paul in the Mosaic Law is a kind of tension that is already at play in the Old Testament itself. It's there. Paul's not creating something completely out of thin air. It's a tension that's there already. Romans chapter 7, Galatians chapter 3, verse 20. Is the law against the promises of God? Is the law bad? I mean, very rarely does Paul sort of break out with this meganoita phrase. I mean, I guess we'll translate that in soft southernese. Heck no, I think is how he would say. No, it's not. Why? Because the law comes from God. But sin sieged that which was good and holy and used it for its own purposes. That's the curse of the law. The problem is not in the law. I mean, this is a kind of a Shakespearean thing, isn't it? The problem, dear Brutus, is not in the stars. The problem is what? It's in ourselves. We're sinners. We're turning on ourselves. And because we're sinners, the law itself has no ability to produce and give life. It doesn't. It cannot make good on that kind of promise. Why? Because sin has laid, have, has laid siege on it and us. And it's a curse for those who want to try to walk down that road. Well, have at it, Paul's saying. Because if you're going to go down that road, you can't just pick and choose. You've got to do it all. And if you're going to do it all, you're going to find yourself turned in on yourself again. And you cannot do it. It does not give life. So you're going to start with the Spirit and then kind of work things out for the rest on the basis of the law. And this is the point here. The faithfulness of Jesus, His own covenant fidelity, was that He took on Himself both the life-giving aspects of the law and the curses of the law for you and for me. This is what we talk in classic theology about the active and the passive obedience of Christ. Christ actively obeyed for you and for me. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law's commands and its intentions for you and for me. But he also passively obeyed. That is, he took on the curses of the law when he went on to the cross and he died for us. And that's why I can say in Colossians that they nailed the legal legations against us to the cross, burying them under the blood of Christ. He took on the curses and he took on the positive aspects for you and for me. That's his faithfulness on our account. And our faith is in that. I believe that he did that for me. And in the believing that He did that for you and for me, we begin to start hearing the chains fall off of us. The Spirit of God does His work, His work, His adoption work in our hearts that we begin to cry out, Father, not as children, I mean, not as slaves, but as children, as free men and women. So He took on uh, the curse for us. All right, I want to press here and then take a few questions. Um, oh, well, let's, I wanted to sit on this. These two verses. Chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Let me rephrase that. 21 and 22. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Mega noita. No way. Heck no. 
For if a law had been given that could impart life, that's the whole point, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. I mean, if the law could do what, if the law could give life, then we would, we would get it that way, but it can't do that. Now listen to this verse. This, this one's a doozy. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through the faith of Jesus might be given to those who believe. Isn't that a strange turn of phrase from Paul there? The Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. I think the best way to understand this, and again, this is a little bit of an elusive phrase here from Paul, but I think the best way to understand this is this. The Scriptures themselves, according to Scripture, we recognize that the law has been locked up under the bondage of sin itself. And you would say, well, Paul, I mean, you can imagine him coming in and we say, okay, Paul, that's a kind of a broad brush statement to make about all the Bible, saying that about the law and sin. Where, where would we go to find that? And you know what I think Paul would say? How about the entire history of Israel? I mean, how about every, you just, just open it and put your finger down. First Kings, Second Kings, Samuel, go to Chronicles, let's go to the prophets. I mean, where would you not go, I think is the question, to see that what Paul is saying here is true. The Scriptures themselves reveal that we are locked in under the bondage of sin and that the law does not have the ability to produce life. It doesn't have that ability. But Christ, it's His faithfulness that, that gives us life. And there's, a, there's big implications of this. Verse 26, Now that faith has come, you're children of God through faith. Our identity has been fundamentally altered because we have been baptized. We've been identified with Christ. We are in Him. There is neither, verse 28, Jew nor Gentile. There's not slave or free. There's not male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you know who Abraham's offspring are, Paul is saying? Not those who do something to their flesh and their body by obeying the law. Those who are the heirs of Abraham are those who are the heirs of faith and belief who trust that God will make good on His saving promises for His people. All right. Well, I want to do adoption, but we're going to do that next week. Okay. Um, let's stop and bat this around. Questions you want to fire away? I guess I'm always struck in the Old Testament how we... They did have to rely on faith because the promise was always to the descendants. <laughs> Abraham, I'm promising, but your yeah. descendants are the ones who are going to receive and, and throughout history. And we're in the same boat yeah. in a sense that we have to walk in faith because yeah. it's really promised on down the line. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you touched on a very good point, And it was one of my big points that I wanted to talk about. So thank you, David. You've had a prophetic insight here. Um, Paul makes a very strange comment. I, I, again, I, I, hope you don't, I hope you don't think I'm in any way undermining his authority. I'm just saying he's difficult, as any sort of complex thinker is. Um, and, and what Paul says is, the promise was made to Abraham, his seed, sperma, singular. And then Paul makes this big linguistic argument, not spermata, seeds, but the sperma, the seed. And that righteous offspring, that seed, is Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, we're the offspring too. 
So in other words, Paul's doing some, it's a theological kind of reading of the Old Testament here, but let me just go ahead and kind of give you a hint of where we're going to go next week. It's a reading that's rooted in Paul's deep understanding of Isaiah. I'll go on record as saying something probably hyperbolic, but I do not think New Testament scholars who work in Galatians have significantly given attention to the impact of Isaiah's theology on how Paul is reading Abraham. I mean, I think it's so significant. He's not just reading the genitive narrative a la carte. He's reading the Genesis narrative through the lens of the prophet Isaiah. And what is promised? We're coming up to Good Friday. So brace yourself as we come listen to this in the Good Friday reading out of Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him so that he might have a righteous offspring. He will see his offspring, the servant will see his offspring. The suffering one suffers. He makes many righteous. And in doing so, he produces an offspring. And then after Isaiah chapter 53, we never see the word servant in the book of Isaiah in the singular again. For the rest of the book, it's now servants, plural. So that the servant, the servant, singular Jesus, as we would read this, has produced a righteous offspring, the seed called the servants. That, I know that sounds a little bit obtuse, but that is significant for what Paul is doing here, I think, in this particular text. Yeah, so the offspring stuff is there. Yeah. Because God gives people the law through Moses. That's supposed to be for their well-being and good. And yet now we say the law isn't really going to do it. We've got to go to Jesus. So what's the highest... I'm trying to understand the process that's going on here. Well, this, yeah, thank you, Jim. Um, right. <clears throat> well, I, this, this, is, this, is, this is where we move from the soup course to the beef, right? And I think the logic that Paul gives in answer to that in both Romans 11, 9 to 11, and here in Galatians 3 is, God Himself shut us up unto disobedience so that He could display the riches of His grace. I think, I mean, I, I don't, I wish I could, you know, we could expound on that. But I think at the heart of it is something like, I think Paul would say, the reason why all this has happened is because at the end of the day, God wants His people to know you have no recourse to human boasting. This whole thing from beginning to end, is an act of my sheer sovereign and good grace and my love toward you. So that people were even shut up into disobedience, turned in on themselves. I mean, my son, my boys are getting this, and they don't like it. Now, I don't know, you can help me. You guys know how to handle children. I mean, my son, the other night, we were reading the Pharaoh story. What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Oh, let's move on, son. I don't want to talk about that. Right? <laughs> um, but there is something here at play where God... Has himself has shut us up unto disobedience so that he might show mercy toward us all. And what is it that Paul says after that? Because we know it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. It's an overwhelming sense of gratitude. What we heard from our sermon this morning from Canon Pearson, right? It's, it's God's kindness that sort of comes to us and goes, oh my, that changes, that, that, there's the change of mind again to believe that that's true and to live lives of gratitude in light of that. that that's, I, I think that gets at it. So I'm not saying it's easy to swallow, but uh, I think it gets at it. Next week, we'll see you. <laughs>